Now, I don't know where some of you are this evening. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, what on earth is this Christianity about? Maybe you're a new student and you're coming to Trinity for the first time thinking, what is it that distinguishes Trinity? What is it that makes Trinity Trinity? And can I say this evening that the hope of our series in these chapters is to point us all to what is central for all of us here this evening. That is, Trinity Church is full of Christians who are Christians of the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross is central to our life and shapes everything for us. The Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth put it this way, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. If you move faith from that centre, you have driven the nail into the church's coffin. The church is then doomed to death, and it is only a matter of time when she shall expire. Or Martin Luther said, crux probat omnia. Now, I just about know that's Latin, but I'm reliably informed that that means the cross tests everything, or the cross probes or proves everything. That is, the cross of Jesus and what he did is at the centre, which is why buildings were built in in the shape of a cross. Because to be a Christian is to live a life that is shaped by the cross. Jesus' death on the cross changes everything. And why is that the case? Well, here's the thing. Jesus willingly came to earth and set himself apart for the cross. No prayer invited him. No welcome awaited him. And yet Jesus entered this world and laid down his life so that anyone but anyone who trusts in him can know forgiveness. We celebrate the cross because it was God's initiative and Jesus willingly chose that. And that means that the effectiveness of what Christians hold most dear, is not contingent upon our desires, which may wax and wane, but on God's willingness to send his son and his son's willingness to go to the cross for us. Jesus' love for the world sprang spontaneously from his heart. It wasn't compelled by anything in us, which means again that his love doesn't wax and wane. But here's the wonderful thing. Not only did Jesus willingly come to die, he came purposefully and effectively. You see, Christianity is a specific religion. It acknowledges that there is a specific problem in the world, and that is that we all have turned our backs on the one who made us. We have walked out on life, living for ourselves and choosing what we want rather than what God wants. But as well as presenting us with a specific problem, the Bible doesn't just give us good advice that we must follow, but good specific news. That is, Jesus's death is a specific cure for our dilemma. As Jesus walked to Calvary and went to the cross, he absorbed the blow of justice we deserved. He redeemed our lives from the pit. He secured forgiveness and opened up life for us. If you're a Christian this evening, the cross isn't a mystical fetish 
or even a piece of jewelry, jewelry that we, rang, we wear around our necks. No, the cross is central to everything. It runs through our lives and shapes everything. And so Paul, writing to a pretty messed up church, as we'll see, writes to them and encourages them to live together through the knowledge of the power of the cross, which is what we want to see in the coming weeks. But this evening, let me just say three things that the cross changes for all of us this evening. Because Jesus came to this earth and went to his death on a Roman cross, it transforms three areas of our lives, actually three pertinent areas for us here this evening in Oxford. Firstly this, Jesus' death changes the identity of those who believe in him. You may have read through the letter to Corinth. And if you have, what you will know is that this was a church that was a mess. They were a total and utter mess, full of squabbling, incest, sleeping with prostitutes, idolatry, drunkenness during church services, chaos abounding, a lack of love. They were a mess. And yet as Paul writes this letter to them, shaped by the cross of Christ, he says this in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people or called to be saints, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this church was a messy and mixed up church. If you were to pick a church that did everything wrong, Corinth would have been top of your list. And yet Paul writes to them, And he says, because of Jesus' death, you actually are saints. You may look like unpromising, dirty soil, but in that unpromising, dirty soil, God has planted a beautiful flower. Now, we may know, and we may have experienced experienced it ourselves, that names carry such weight and significance. And so for Paul writing to this messed up church, the change of name meant to them a change of status. They may well have been feeling the shame of the things that Paul's going to write to them about. And yet Paul says, no, here is your identity as a Christian. You are a saint. Some of you will be in that stage of life where you're having to introduce yourself about every five seconds giving your Oxford stats and getting to know people. And it's exhausting, isn't it? Because so often you feel like you have to put on a front. But if you had to truly define yourself, if you were to stand honestly in front of the mirror and define yourself as you actually feel, how would you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Regret. Hi, my name is Defeat. Doubt, shame, confused, broken, forgotten, anxious. I don't say that assuming that that's how you feel, but I know for so many of us, we put ourselves down and we define ourselves in these ways. And what Paul is saying to you this evening is that Jesus' death is so transformative that it takes all your shame It takes all your regrets and it transforms your identity so that you can look in the mirror and you can say, hello, 
I am daughter of the Most High God. Hello, I am son of the one true King. Hello, I am a friend of God. Hello, I am part of the bride of Christ. Hello, I have brothers and sisters who love me. Paul is saying, for all the wreckage behind you, you are no longer defined by that because Jesus' death on the cross unites you to the one who makes all things new. His death on the cross takes all our shame and brokenness and spits it out and transforms us into something new and something beautiful. If you are a Christian this evening, can I say to you, God sees you as a saint. He loves you. You might want to say to God, no, 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 God, you can't, you can't say that because have you seen the things that I've done? And God says, don't say that. You are a saint. Not just people like Mother Teresa in this world are saints. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is so transformed that nothing and no one can take that away from you. You aren't defined by any wreckage that you feel like you've left behind. You are defined by the peace that Jesus' death brings. But it's really hard to accept that, isn't it? Because we're so often assailed with temptations and doubts. Melissa Kruger, the American author, says this. She says, living as a saint who struggles with sin is profoundly different from living as a sinner who's desperately trying to be a saint. Please don't come to Trinity Church and think that you have to measure up to some sort of standard. You don't, because none of us do. Please don't feel like you have to be defined by your shame. If you come here this evening, we love you because God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. Paul is saying to this messed up church, your identity isn't achieved, it's received. So don't worry, don't come to Oxford and think I've got to tick every single box to achieve some sort of identity that gives me meaning in life. No, Jesus says, I have done it all for you. If you open your arms to me, you can receive this new identity. And this new identity, verse 3, gives grace and peace to those who, who are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was writing in the days of the Pax Romana. That is, that if you were a Roman citizen... You could walk from one end of the Roman Empire to the other without fear of recrimination or shame. You had the protection of the Roman emperor at your disposal. And Paul is saying, I've got something so much better for you. And he's saying the same to us this evening. I don't know what it is that this world offers, but maybe it's the peace of self-expression where you can be yourself. But that seems so token, doesn't it? Maybe it's the acceptance of achievement, but that seems so out of reach when you're in the midst of a busy term. Maybe it's the love of being on the inside, but haven't so many of us discovered that that's fragile and fleeting? Can I tell you this evening, the cross of Jesus offers something better. When you look at Jesus, he loved people. Not for what they had done, but in spite of what they had done. And he offers love and acceptance to you today in a world where shame and rejection rule. Jesus was the Prince of Peace, 
who came as our saviour, offering us freedom from guilt, security for the future and support in the present. And Jesus accepted people. He was the friend of those who were outcasts in society. In fact, he was so loving towards them that he was like a magnet to them and they longed for his company. So whoever you are this evening, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, can I tell you, Jesus welcomes you into his presence. He will not turn you away. He offers you love, peace and acceptance that transcends anything this world has to offer. To the saints in Corinth, the messed up saints, secure in the fact that God loved them. But Paul goes on in his letter to say, how are you living out that identity? He says, are you in danger of emptying the cross of its power? The cross so transforms your identity that now you can live for Jesus. You can live in your workplace or in your college like Jesus. And so he doesn't just say called to be holy. He, or he doesn't just say called saints. He says called to be holy. We must live out our calling. But here's the problem. When we think about living holy lives, it sounds so bland and colourless, doesn't it? Someone wants to define Puritanism, the the kind of 16th century evangelical religion, as the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. But can I tell you, if you're a Christian this evening, that is not your identity. How do I know that? Look at Jesus. Laughter followed him. There there was healing for those who were bruised, motivation for change. There was always a sense of anticipation and a sense of calm around him. And we're called to live like that. Not kind of solemn and grim face, but living like Jesus. Jesus' death transforms everything. It transforms, secondly, our gifting. And that may well be relevant to us this evening, as many of us in here have been gifted enough to achieve entrance into Oxford. And Paul says, because Jesus has died, it transforms the way you see your gifts and your abilities. He says, for in Jesus you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all, in, with all knowledge. The church in Corinth had been given gifts, particularly gifts of speech and persuasive argumentation, if that sounds familiar in this city. But do you notice that Paul is much less concerned about the quality of these gifts? and much more interested in who gives these gifts. In verses 4 to 9, where Paul talks about these gifts, one person is mentioned in every verse. That is Jesus. You see, for Paul, if Jesus has died on the cross for you, then everything, your studies, your workplace, your family life, everything is ultimately about him. And when it's about him, in comparison to what he did on the cross, well, what we feel like we need to do is actually small beans. We can give our gifts to Jesus and know that he has done what is impossible for us. You see, Paul says, you have these gifts, but don't think of them as a way to scramble to the top and make yourself known amongst a community. No, use your gifts to build up the community particularly challenging in a church where, in many ways, people in my position 
are so easily elevated because we're set aside to put in time to organising services. And people think that unless you're involved in something that's visible, then actually you're not particularly valuable in the life of the church. We'll come on to that. Can I say that's nonsense? Jesus loves you. He's given you specific gifts for a specific purpose. And he's saying, use them for the building up of the community. But it's not just in the church, isn't it, is it? In this city. Don't we live under a constant pressure to live up to our gifting? To kind of say, well, I've done everything I can to get here. And now I've discovered that I'm surrounded by the same people who are exhausted by constantly trying and constantly giving of our best. And Paul says, can I free you from that this evening? If Jesus' death on the cross is central, then actually your degree, yes, is important, but it, it doesn't matter as much. And so therefore you are free to use your gifts and then leave them to God. To, to work hard and then to say, Lord, that's it. That's what I can give. That, that's my limit. And to trust him with that. I know that sounds difficult, But you are blessed this evening to be here in many ways because God has given you gifts and you use those gifts and give them back to him. So you don't need to cling on to them. You don't need to think that you're defined by what you achieve, but most importantly, by what you receive. You don't need to climb to the top because Jesus climbed to the top of a mountain outside of Jerusalem. And he hung on a cross there for you to secure a way to heaven. And ultimately, verse 8, Paul's confidence is not in their gifts or their performance, but in God himself. He says, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. One little thing to notice about the church in Corinth. A gifted city full of wisdom, full of intellect and eloquence. It's interesting to note what Paul doesn't thank them for or commend them for. Here are three other letters. To the church in Philippi, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you because of your partnership in the gospel. Colossians 1. We always thank God because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. 1 Thessalonians. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I love Trinity is that that's what I see amongst us as a church family. I see much more love and concern for each other than I do scrambling to get to the top, trying to show off, trying to, to be seen as the best. I see a lot more quiet conversations and arms round the shoulder, and I love that about this church. And I think as we are challenged from Paul's letter to Corinthians, let's challenge one another and encourage one another to grow in those other gifts of love and service and encouragement and to use them for the good of this church. You see, Jesus' death on the cross means that he has done what is impossible for you. He has secured an identity that cannot be taken away from you. And he says, whatever happens whilst you're in Oxford, whether you succeed or fail, he is with you. He is for you. And he brings us into a community 
that draws us together, that we can lift each other up. You see, the cross of Jesus transforms our family. It transforms us collectively. You see, never in the New Testament does it say that someone's called to be a saint, singular. You can't be a saint on your own. It's always called to be saints, because we can't actually live as saints unless we're living it in community together. And here's the problem in Corinth, verses 10 to 17. 10 to 17. They had a problem. That was they were divided by factionalism. Some people supported Paul. People have described him as the spiritual people. Other people preferred Apollos because he was more sophisticated. He was more educated in Greek wisdom. Some people just liked the rough and ready attitude of Peter. They were serious and thought that these other people were just intellectual and nonsensical. And others just were being smug. I follow Christ. But here's the thing. In a church, we can so easily believe the stereotypes we have of one another. We can look at particular people in church or we can look at other churches and just believe the stereotypes and and actually put a wedge between us. And, And Paul is saying, no, the cross of Christ has such power that it draws us together into family. So the more we keep Jesus' death on the cross central, the less bickering they will be. I said uh, that if you bicker, you'll get sicker. And that is what happened in Corinth. But as Paul starts his letter, and as he deals with a range of problems, prostitution in the church, drunkenness in church services, a lack of love, at the heart of that, it seems that Division in the church is the common thread that ran through the rest of the problems in Corinth. And I wonder whether you have experienced that in churches. The church is called the Bride of Christ, and yet the reality is so often Christians are jostling for position, trying to get at the front when they're the Bride of Christ. The church is described like a company of soldiers and yet so often when you look at Christians, they're not fighting together but trampling on each other and injuring their own wounded people. Paul says, if you're a Christian this evening because Jesus has died on the cross, there are two significant things that happen to you. In chapter 3, he says, we become the temple. That is, this evening, where we are together, we are where God dwells. We're not a special interests group. No, we are where God has chosen to dwell and to live amongst. What that means is that we are never involved in comparison games here at Trinity because we centre ourselves around the cross and when you look at Jesus on the cross, all human self-importance comes to nothing. Some of you are going to be trying out different churches in Oxford and can I say... We are really blessed in this city. There are some wonderful churches. It's not a competition. And the only thing I ask of you is please speak well of other Christians. Please commend them. Please celebrate them for their differences and for the fact that they love the cross of Christ. But I think more specifically for us this evening, Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to describe the church of Jesus as a body. That is, we are made up of different parts. And what he's saying to us this evening is that because of the cross of Jesus, you, individually, are essential and necessary to us collectively. If you're a part of Trinity, Trinity Church would not be the same place without you. 
Why is that? Because if you see disembodied limbs, it's grotesque. But when you see a body put together, it is beautiful. And actually, Paul uses the image of the body to say that actually we mustn't try and be clones of each other. We must celebrate our uniquenesses and our diversity. We must celebrate where God has put us and the experiences God has given us. And yet as a church, it can be so easy to be corporate, isn't it? We treat each other like colleagues and co-workers rather than brothers and sisters. We think about discipleship in terms of targets rather than in terms of people. We think of evangelism more like advertising than invitation. But can I say this evening, because Jesus has died on the cross for you, in this family, it is impossible for unwanted children to be born. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is valuable. Who you are in the place that God has put you, whether that's employed, whether that's as a grandparent or a parent or as a student, as someone who's unemployed, as someone who's married or unmarried, you are essential to us as a church. The church wouldn't be the same without you. And here's the thing, as Paul speaks of the church as a body, we must think of how the body fights infection. When the body experiences an infection, what happens is this, blood flow increases, muscles contract, and it's as if everything in the body rushes to the area that needs protecting. So when you look at the church in the persecuted world, when you look at the church in Iraq, you see that's what's, that's what's happening. This is something I read on, open, on the Open Doors website. A pastor in Iraq said this, there are Coptic Orthodox looking after Pentecostals, looking after Anglicans. The body of Christ is hurting and we are rushing to protect it. And some of you in here this evening may well be hurting. You may well be weighed down with burdens that seem intolerable. And can I say, we want to rush to you. We want to rush to you this evening over the course of this autumn, over the course of this year. And we want to gather round you because Jesus loved you so much to go to the cross for you. His blood purchased your redemption, not, not any skills or gifts that people have. And so that should change everything for us. When we put Jesus' cross at the centre of everything. We don't try to look impressive, we just try to be honest with each other because that is all that matters. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world for us. And if you put your trust in him, can I tell you this evening, you are worth Jesus' blood. There's nothing more valuable in the world. You are worth Jesus' blood. And so for all your foibles and oddities and weirdnesses, I love you for that. Because you are the most precious gift that God has given us. Because you were purchased at the price of Jesus' blood. He did everything for you. That's how much he loves you. And that's how valuable you are to us. And so that means we as a church gather around each other, rushing to those who are in need and putting our efforts in, not because we want to pursue our own agendas or our own lifestyles. We don't need to. 
Because by Jesus' death on the cross, he has transformed us such that we are saints. So as I finish, can I ask you this? Has Jesus' death on the cross gripped you as the single most important thing in life? The willing, voluntary love of Jesus that went to his agonising death on a cross to bring you to God. There's an old hymn that I used to sing which says this, Now none but Christ can satisfy, no other name for me, there's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in you. And if you're not a Christian this evening, please stay with us. Please come on a journey with us and and ask those difficult questions because it does sound weird. But if you are a Christian this evening, can I say to you, you are the most valuable person in the world because your life was bought at the cost of the blood of Jesus.